The General Services Administration and the Office of Management and Budget yesterday said they'd made big changes on how they'll administer a billion-dollar fund for modernizing federal information systems. Among other things, the new guidance emphasizes changes to the repayment model for that technology modernization fund, but a new faster time frame poses challenges. Federal News Network's Jason Miller has been following this development closely. He joins me now with what he has learned. And Jason, let's start by summarizing what the guidance is saying about the TMF. Well, Tom, as we know, there's a billion dollars in this fund. So there's a lot of interest both in industry and across government. So what this guidance does is basically lays out the process. And this process is really, in many ways, no different than what we've seen over the last couple of years with the Technology Modernization Fund. Basically, what OMB and GSA and the TMF board did was just say, okay, remember, here are things to keep in mind. Here are things that are important. And for instance, Tom, they, they want smart investments. They want investments focused in really four main areas, cybersecurity, of course, React, reacting to solar winds and other uh, other issues that have popped up. They want citizen-facing or public-facing websites and, and systems. We saw that with the pandemic. Things needed to be modernized and modernized quickly. High-priority systems, which could be cybersecurity, which could be public-facing, or could be something in the back office world. You know, legacy systems that are old, that are going out of date, that are you know need to be again need some help to move forward to get off those those platforms and, and then and then finally shared services can they move to shared services and this could be financial management this could be cybersecurity could be hr could be a whole number of different areas of shared services that are, are starting to really crop up and, and if those are your four priority areas then okay then how do you repay that and i think that's the other big change that came about is the repayment model and tom we'll go into this in a little bit i know but but the repayment model has been one of those areas that the industry and and other experts have said this has got to improve because it's one of the big obstacles to more agencies using TMF. Got it. So they have kind of reestablished what fits in that corral of modernization. And a lot of those things might be expansions of services, and they might not necessarily be cheaper than running the old system. So it's not just a legacy system replacement. Therefore, Maybe the payback model is a little obsolete relative to five years ago. I think what they've realized is just because you're modernizing doesn't mean you can always save money. And just because you can save money, it, it, the payback is less important than providing better services, more secure services. And I, I think cybersecurity is actually a perfect example of an area where the TMF could really help. But there may not be, if you will, savings or may not be cost avoidance where you could say, okay, we used to spend a dollar in cybersecurity. Now we're spending 90 cents. So we'll put that 10 cents back into the the TMF fund. Maybe you're only spending a dollar in cybersecurity, but now you're going to spend a dollar 50 on it. But that's so much better cybersecurity than what you're getting. So, so the three payment models, the flexibilities they've added. Okay, you have the full repayment model. That's how the TMF has worked over the last uh, few years. You have to pay back every dollar you borrow. You have the partial repayment, and that's where their agencies would request and indicate how they could uh, repay anywhere from 25% to 50% to 75% of that loan. And and then finally, you have minimal repayment, which are investments for what OMB calls the most urgent IT cybersecurity modernization problems. Cost savings are not easily realized. And again, it goes back to the pandemic savings or pandemic challenges or solar winds incident. But you also have to include these projects to ensure that they're not part of a proposed cyber reserve funding that's part of your 2022 budget as well. So, so I think this will help agencies really say, here's what we need to use it for, here's what the potential is, and then here's how we can repay it or not. Tom, I talked to one agency CIO who requested anonymity because they did not get permission to talk to the press, and they actually told me that the repayment model has been a fatal flaw within the TMF. 
they told me agencies hate repayment agreements of any kind, and, and it does not, this flexibility actually does not make it more appealing, except for they actually pointed out the U.S. Digital Service because of their mission, which is to help other agencies. And generally speaking, they don't believe the USDS will actually pay back the money anyways. The payback model also transforms the board into what this person says is a bank with loan officers. And, and that's not what their goal is either. They, they necessarily don't have experience in that type of if you will, banking, loan officing. Sure. So, so I think that there's a lot of concern still, even with this flexibility in the in the payback model. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. So the question is, will the deciding board that does hand out the money, the bankers, <laughs> will they match up your agency's proposal with the payback model they think is most appropriate? Or how is that all going to work? Or do we know yet? I think you have it right on the, the spot there that they're going to ask you, the agency, okay, how are you going to pay this back? And they're going to agree with you or disagree with you. And, and it's a whole series of questions. And and the one credit you have to give to the TMF board, and there's many credits, but the one big one is they've been as transparent as possible with how this process works. If you go to the TMF website, you see, well, it's a multi-step process. First, we do it this way. Then we do it this way. And early on, specifically when the TMF board launched the, the effort to, to pay out some of the tens of millions of dollars that they received from Congress back in 2018 and 2019, they had people talking at different events to say, well, here's our process. Once you give us, we come back to you with questions, and then you come back to us with, with a reproposal. So I think that this will follow the same path, Tom. And, and if an agency says we think we can pay 50% back and the board says we think it's closer to 75%, they'll have that conversation and come to an agreement if they decide to move forward with, you know, in, into the you know, other phases of the funding effort. And just one inconvenient question is the statutory backing for the TMF in the first place. Does it allow that much flexibility in the payback model, including no payback? There is some disagreement on that. If you read what the Modernizing Government Technology Act, the MGT Act, says, there's no flexibility built in there. You, you know, Basically, it says you will repay this money. Now, OMB is experts, right? They have budget people who read legislation all the time and make decisions based on spirit and intent, and they, they look at all the, the details. So it will be interesting to see what Congress does. If you look at the letters that have been written over the last month and a half or so asking OMB to move more quickly with this guidance, whether it's from Senator Mark Warner and, and Chris Van Hollen or, or Congressman Jerry Connolly and others, they've all brought up the payback model and adding more flexibilities. So there at least seems to be some support in on Capitol Hill to say, we understand that this could be an obstacle and we're willing to work with you. And anyway, a sharp CFO can make a payment produced magically if they want to. Well, you're not supposed to rob Peter to pay Paul. I mean, that that's something that I heard last week at, at a hearing on from the House of Homeland from the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, where former energy CIO Max Everett talked about, hey, when I wanted to do modernization, a lot of times I would take money from one pot and put it in the other, and that never ends up good because somebody somewhere is going to fall short. Yeah, it's like the old IBM motto, hat buried in expense report, you find it. I guess maybe <laughs> somebody will find it nowadays. And Jason, do you feel that this memo coming from GSA and OMB, and they made a press release out of it also, is maybe designed to gin up interest in having more agencies apply for TMF money because it's not always been a stampede. Absolutely. I think they're really trying to show Congress. They're trying to communicate it to Congress and to agencies. Hey, we are open for business. We are accepting applications and proposals. And Tom, the time is short for that first round. Now, OMB was very clear to say we will, we will look at proposals on a rolling basis. It's not a one and done, but to get expedited consideration, and that's the language that OMB used, you need to get us your 
proposals by early June. So it's less than a month they, they a lot of agencies have. And I talked to Gordon Bitko, a former FBI CIO now over at the uh, IT Industry uh, Council, and he talked about this idea that if you're an agency that has an IT modernization plan, you've been you've been looking at this, you've been following it, you probably have the 80% solution or the 90% solution, and you just need to tweak it up and then send it over to the TMF board. Other CIOs who maybe aren't as, as far as advanced, they may have a lot of work to do between now and the, the end of the month, and they may need more time. So it's going to be hard to say, it all depends where agencies exist today in that IT modernization effort and wh how the CIO views this. And the one other piece of this, Tom, that I think we haven't talked about that I think OMB and other agencies and, and Congress is getting the CFOs, getting the deputy secretaries, getting the chief acquisition officers on board with this plan. And I think a lot of there's a, been a lot of pushback and concern from CFOs earlier on in the TMF about this. Uh, and, and what we've heard from the board and members of the board is any good proposal includes the CIO, the CFO, the program folks, includes the entire community coming forward with the plan, not just a CIO or not just a program. That's right. You've got that Fatara scorecard to worry about. Well, that's another piece of this puzzle, right? If, if you are following the rules, the, the, the spirit and intent of the Fatara scorecard, the CIO is involved and has the quote-unquote seat at the table with those other CXOs and the other agency leaders. The, the question comes down to is, are those other agency leaders and the CIO together moving forward with this proposal, or is this something being pushed by one organization or one part of the agency and not the entire agency? And I think the TMF board recognizes that they can see that in the proposals. Yes, I can hear the clicking going on to convene those Zoom government meetings to get the plans underway and get those applications in. Time is short. <laughs> Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Check out a story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, 
uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership 
was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's in an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick? Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zell. 
Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.